Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. This is following uh, David and Jonathan, Jonathan's commitment to David, Jonathan's covenant with David. And now David is on the run. This is a time before SEAL Team 6. This is a time before um, special operations teams. But Saul is in hot pursuit of David. And David is fleeing from Saul's wrath. 1 Samuel 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what, the, what God will do for me? So he left them in the king, uh, with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him, and he also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Hetuab, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Hetuab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he is rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let the king accuse your servant, let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guard at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing and yet they did not tell me. But the king officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of priests with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Atuab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I 
am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, we also consider your kingship. And we consider your son. We consider the sharp contrast that we see here. Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would open it up to us. And where you have to encourage us, encourage us by your spirit. Where you have to shape us and mold us and rebuke us, rebuke us by your word. It is in your power and the power of your spirit to change our hearts with your word. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sharp contrasts. One of the places where sharp contrasts are very important is in the cutting of a diamond. I remember when uh, I first gave my uh, wife, then my fiance, her diamond, I thought I then became an expert in diamonds. So I went with a friend of mine to look at diamonds, and there I am looking through the loop going, I have no idea what I'm looking for here. Not one clue. And he's trusting me to, to kind of give him my opinion on this diamond. But since then, I've learned a few things about diamonds. And one of the things uh, that is important about a diamond is how the facets are cut. Now, the facets, the facets are like little windows into the gem itself. And they bring in the light and they scatter the light inside the gem for the purpose of displaying a refulgent gem. Now, if the facets aren't cut correctly, the contrast will not be sharp. And if the contrast is not sharp, the diamond will not shine. It will not be brilliant. It will not be that sparkle that the woman wants that captivates the attention of her friends when she has it on her hand. And, they, and she... And she shows it to them and waves it in their face and it sparkles in the light and they're dazzled not only by the fact that she's engaged but by the diamond that's on her hand and I'm sure Tom Shane would want you to know that he is your friend in the diamond business as well (laughs) so contrasts are important contrasts are very important when we look at this chapter what we see is a very sharp contrast. Coming off of a covenant with David, we see Jonathan who is willing to bow before the Lord and acknowledge the fact that David is the anointed of God, that Jonathan will never be king of Israel. And he's okay with that. Why? Because he is okay with his Lord and he knows his Lord and he bows before his Lord as king. His father, not so. By contrast, his father refuses to accept the reality that he knows to be true, that the Spirit of the Lord has has left him, and his anointing has gone to David. And instead of embracing that, he pursues David, trying to kill him. So we see that contrast. We see the contrast of the brutality of the world and the world's systems here. Versus the kingship of God through his anointed. The Lord is allowing us to see in the darkness of this passage a reminder that that the darkness of this world brings into sharp contrast his kingdom and his glory and the glory to come. The darkness of this world presses us to believe and embrace that there is something greater than this world as we know it. It's a reminder. It's a reminder 
that as dark as this world is, there is a light, a heaven that is to come. When I was in college, I remember wrestling through my faith, and I found C.S. Lewis to be very comforting to my faith, and I quote him an awful lot. In fact, if, if I have a sermon, I pr- pretty much will quote C.S. Lewis. So that's going to happen today as well. As I wrestled with the concept of darkness in my philosophy classes, in my religion classes, and I continued to have my professors tell me that evil is a problem for Christians. And I wrestled with that. I wrestled with the fact that there, were dark, there was darkness. And then I came across this quote by C.S. Lewis. It made me see things a little differently. If there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. His argument is this. We shouldn't understand what darkness is if there's not light. We should not understand that there's ultimate goodness in this world if all we've ever experienced is ultimate darkness. God has put within us an eternity, as Ecclesiastes says, a concept that there is a God, there is a heaven, there is a kingdom still to come, and the one that we're living in is desperately broken. And we know it. We feel it, and we sense it. But the problem happens is when we let that contrast blend into gray. And we come to accept the world as it is, as the only reality we'll ever experience. And that's when our faith becomes challenged. And I think that's what's happening to David here. David's having a moment. As much as his heart was for God, and as much as he went for God, and as much as he stood up for the things of God, he is having a moment here where he doesn't want to leave the stronghold. There's something about the human heart that rather settle than to fight. And that is what David, I think, is experiencing. Because in verse 5, David is experiencing the reality of being pursued by Saul. He has gone to Mizpah to seek refuge in the stronghold of the cave of Adullam. And we get the slightest hint that it might have crossed David's mind to just stay there and to settle. And we get that idea because in verse 5, the prophet Gad comes to him and speaks truth just like those friends in our life that come to us and speak truth. He says, do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. Now, David, like every single one of us, feels the hopelessness. It doesn't mean that he distrusts God. He's just having a moment, just like we do. In the moments like this, we need to be reminded of the powerful kingship of God. Gad presses David, Judah needs her king. Because his prophet, Gad knows that David is one of the facets that sheds light on the ultimate king who is to come, the Messiah. Before we are reminded of God's powerful kingship, though, let's first consider the sharp contrast. First, Saul reminds us of the hopeless darkness of the kingdoms of this world. Now, the narrative of Saul begins in 1 Samuel 8 when the people of God in rebellion come to Samuel and they they ask him for a king like 
the other nations. Not just to have a king who's physical, but a, you know, physically present, but a king who is like in character to the kings of the other nations. One who will, as they say, fight their battles for them. And that's an important phrase, and I want you to take that phrase, and I want you to put, stick it over here in the corkboard because we're going to come back to it. One who will fight our battles for us. But God told, them to, told Samuel to warn the people that this king would be far from what they imagined. He would not be a king who would seek their best interests, but he would seek his own interests. And he tells them, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But they didn't care. They said, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out to battle before us. Saul refused to fight those battles, though. He cowered before Goliath, putting a young child in his armor. He served his own interests. And now here is the crescendo of what was unfolded in Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This king does not refuse, well, this king refuses to fight their battles and instead he murders their priests. This is the pinnacle of Saul's evil. It's a dark act that shows that he trusts not the kingdom of God, but he trusts in his own power and avarice and greed. He trusts in the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, as Paul calls him. And he has convinced Saul that the kingdoms of this world shall be victorious by brutal force and that they should direct their attacks against God's anointed. This is what Psalm 2 says. It's on the heart of the nations when it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed. Let us break their chains. Let us throw off their fetters. And that is what Saul is doing through brutal force. He is attempting to throw off the fetters of God's sovereignty and kingship over him. His rule saying that David is the one who is to be next. And he says, I'm not having it. I can stop this from happening. And he goes after David. And when, he ref- when the, the priests refuse to give up any intel on David... Saul becomes angry. Even before this counter, you see his countenance and you see his heart because he is sitting under the tamarisk tree, not having a picnic, not leisurely sitting back, but spear in hand. He wants blood. Because as one of the representatives of the kingdoms of this world, that's how he conquers, by brute force and blood. But the king's officials, when Saul gave the command to kill the priests, had within them a reverence of God. And they stood back and said, we can't do this. These are God's priests. They stand before God and pray for us and intercede for us. How should we raise our hand against them? And so they step back and refuse to kill the priests. But the desperate king has one who is willing to attack. Doeg the Edomite. 
And Doeg is willing to do Saul's bidding. It says, so Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down that day. He killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Utter destruction. A desperate king utilizing an Edomite, that is a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, to slaughter innocents because he is ultimately trying to destroy God's anointed king. Does that sound familiar? It should, because that's exactly what Satan tries to do in the New Testament when Jesus is born. When the wise men come and they tell tell of the coming of the king and they go to meet him, he tells them, come back to me and tell me so I can go worship him. And they're warned in a dream and they don't go back. King Herod is an Edomite. He's in a Jew. And the king of this, the prince and the power of the world uses him to go after Jesus, the anointed of God. A fruitless, senseless act. And from the cosmic perspective, that act is given in Revelation 12, where Satan the dragon is pictured as an aggressor trying to devour the child of the woman. But in reality, we see it in Matthew 2, 16 through 18, as King Herod, this Edomite, this, pulpit, this puppet king destroys all of the children to and under, all the male children, to protect his kingdom. And it's futile. Psalm 2 says the Lord laughs because as Martin Luther penned, lo, Satan's doom is sure. Satan is defeated and battered. He's a foe who is fighting a futile battle. And Martin Luther knew it all too well. Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, who kicked off the Reformation uh, with his 95 theses uh, hammered to the door of Wittenberg Chapel, he appeared at the Diet of, of, of Worms. Not worms, that's disgusting. Diet of Worms, that's disgusting. But it's easy to remember. Diet of Worms, and he had to answer for everything he had written. And after a night of prayer he came before the men of the corrupt Roman Catholic Church at that time. And he said, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. So help me God. He was spirited away by um, Elector Frederick to a, a castle where he pretended to be Knight George to hide his identity. And he continued to translate the Bible into German And he came across Psalm 46, which says that God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And from there, his heart was moved to write the words of a mighty fortress is our God. Luther reflects on the sin-darkened world, its mortal ills, and and the foe, Satan, who, as the prince of the power of the air, comes against us as God's people wanting to demoralize us by the darkness of this world and our failures, telling us that we can't flee to the cross, that we must either flee to our own, uh, our own self-atonement or else we must flee altogether 
But the gospel tells us we must flee to the cross. And that Satan, who comes to oppose God's people, is a defeated foe, fighting for every square inch of ground that he currently maintains. Martin Luther perfectly encapsulates that through his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One, one little word should, shall fail him. As strong as darkness may feel, it is not as strong as our king who now you take that phrase off of the corkboard, he fights for us. Which brings us to David, to the contrast that makes the diamond, which is God's anointed, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come, sparkle. Because David reminds us of the hope we have in the kingship of Christ. Though Saul reminds us of the hopeless darkness of the kingdoms of this world. David, as imperfect as he is, was chosen by God as a man after God's own heart to show a sliver, a small portion of what our God is like as king. True king. And he is a facet which shines light on the Messiah to come. But some of what David does here, even though he does, he has his own crescendo in which he takes Bathsheba as his own and he murders Uriah the Hittite, which does not show the heart of God as king. There are points in his life that show us something of God and his character as king and the trust that it elicits. And we see it here in first, what David is reminded of, and second, what David does. Well, first, what is David reminded of? This passage is steeped in biblical history. And each incident alluded to is a reminder of the sustaining presence of God as true king. What are those reminders? Well, first, where is he when this story begins? He's in Mizpah. What's, this, what's the history and the significance behind Mizpah? Well, in the middle of the night, Jacob, who has labored 14 years for Laban, who has been his oppressor and not letting him go, continuing to, to get favor that God poured on Jacob, he used him for his own good. And so he refused to let him go. So Jacob, in the middle of the night, leaves to go back to his own country with Rachel and Leah and their children. And of course, Rachel steals the gods and Laban wakes and finds them gone. And I think that the gods being gone are only partly an excuse. And he pursues Jacob in anger. And he comes to him. And they come to Mizpah, the place that will be called Mizpah. And God has moved Laban's heart. And Laban walks away from it all. He gives up. He relents. And they build a little stone pillar there. And call it Mizpah, meaning watchtower. May may God watch over us until we meet again. Part of it's a blessing. And part of it's kind of like a southern bless your heart. Let me explain. Bless your heart is, oh, bless your heart. I have compassion for you, but you're also kind of strange and you're, 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 you a little bit get on my nerves. 
We know that, right? Mitzvah is a bless your heart for Jews. Okay, so it's, um, it's the Lord bless you, but if you cross over into my territory and I find you lacking, I'm going to kill you. That's what Laban's saying to him. May God bless us both. May he bless you more if I ever catch you over on my side again because you've wronged me in my own eyes. Mitzvah becomes a sign of God's deliverance. Mitzvah becomes a place where, though Laban intends it as a bless your heart, God intends it as a bless your soul. And he blesses Jacob and he delivers him back into the promised land so he can fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac. God is being faithful and God will continue to be faithful. It's a reminder of God's presence with Jacob and his ultimate protection. That's where he is. Now, what does he have? When he arrives to the priests there at Nob, he's given the sword of Goliath. Now, this should be an incredible reminder to David. Because David, when he came against Goliath, that giant, as a boy, filled with all kinds of of, eagerness to to fight, a little bit like Luke when he wanted to blow up the Death Star and take on the Empire alone. He comes against Goliath and he defeats him with one stone. And here David is fleeing and he doesn't have a sword and so he asks for a sword and the only sword by God's sovereignty and by God's sovereign hand that is available is the sword of Goliath. And God doesn't intend him to trust in the sword of Goliath. He intends him to be reminded of what God has done for him as king. Because when David came against Goliath, he didn't come against him as David. He came against him because he knew that the Lord God of Israel could slay Goliath no matter what. He had nothing to fear because God could destroy the enemy. That's what the sword of Goliath reminds him of. And that's what it should remind us of. That our king has the power to overcome anything that comes against our lives. What is your sword of Goliath? What is that thing? What is that moment that you remember vividly God delivering you? Where is that sword now? Where have you packed it away? Have you forgotten it? Is it wrapped in linen and hidden away? It's time to unwrap it. Because that is a sovereign reminder of God's presence in our lives and his deliverance as our king. If he has the sword of Goliath, David is now remembering as he's here in this stronghold, nothing can come against him that God cannot defeat. Christ for us has conquered sin Satan and death, what have we to fear? Finally, where is he? What does he have? Of what did he partake? When he arrives amongst the priests, his men are hungry. And all they have offer by way of bread is the bread of the presence, the showbread. So in the tabernacle, what, what the showbread would be is the bread that's offered to the Lord that is sitting in his presence. And it doesn't take a whole lot of rocket science to figure out the connection of the Old Testament bread of presence and the New Testament 
Lord's Supper. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, Dr. Yusuf uses the words, these are visible reminders of what? The death of Jesus Christ that won us the victory. That act in which we trust for eternity, that secures us our eternity. And as we look at it, as we look at that bread of presence, when he partakes of that bread of the presence, and we partake of that Lord of the Supper, Lord, Lord's Supper, we, re, we are reminded that God is always, always present with his people. And that when long after Jesus had returned to heaven, he left his spirit and his presence to uplift us, to fill us, so that we may continue, no matter what comes against us, that he would empower us by his presence, moment by moment, in a world that is dark and is a contrast to what our heart hopes for. So second, what does David do? What does David do that reminds us of the king who is to come? First, he gathers the distressed and indebted and discontented. Look at verse 2. He says, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. You can almost see the New Testament passage where the sick and the lame and the broken all come to Jesus for healing and for words of life. David isn't the kind of king that is gathering an army that is, that is filled with all of these strong people. He's the leader of a ragtag bunch of, of discontents, indebted, and dispossessed people. It looks a lot like the disciples, fishermen, zealots, tax collectors, prostitutes. The unlikeliest assortment of people that God is gathering, but it shows us the kind of king that our God is because he gathers a people to lead that are not perfect, that are broken and are desperately in need. And that's us. That's all of us. While Saul is gathering mighty men and men who would do his bidding, an Edomite who would kill men, women, and children, David is gathering a group of people who are broken and in need of his kingship. And our Lord is doing the same. He gathers the distressed, the indebted, the discontented, and the broken. And that's who we are as his people. But he doesn't just gather us. He does what David does here at the end of the passage. He protects the harassed and the helpless, and he offers safety. There is one survivor of the slaughter at Nob, and that's Abiathar. And Abiathar comes to David, and he seeks refuge with David. Now, David is no longer at the stronghold. David is in Judah, and David is the refuge because David is trusting in God as his refuge. And in verse 23, David, with compassion, the compassion of the true king, says to Abiathar, Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. 
you will be safe with me. You will be safe with me. We are those who are fleeing to Christ, our King, for safety. And he promises us, look, the King, the Prince of the power of this, this, this world, the air, will come after you. But he came after me first. And I beat him down. And you are safe with me. Have you fled to that king for safety? Have you fled to Jesus for safety? Because he will take you in. Whether you're just a Christian beaten up by the world and have forgotten the blessing that is following Christ as king, or whether you have never bent the knee before Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, he welcomes you into his camp and he offers you eternal refuge. Come to him today. We all have our moments. It's very easy to not want to leave the stronghold as we think about Christ, our King, think about Gethsemane. Think about that moment where he wanted the cup to pass before him. He was having a moment. But in his moment, he didn't sin. In his moment, he did not eternally doubt. In his moment, he did what no man who ever came before him did and no king who ever came before him did. He gave everything to fight for us, to be our King. He did not let the cup pass before him. He drank it deeply. He went to the cross. He experienced the wrath, and he gave us his righteousness, and he promises those who bow before him as king will be with him forever in his eternal kingdom. We celebrate that today. If you're going through a dark time, I pray that what it will do is that it will remind you that there's a contrast here. The darkness of this world isn't all there is. It is a reminder that there is a greater king and a greater kingdom yet to come for all who persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so often get caught up in the pain and the brokenness and the darkness of this world. We pray that you will remind us that though Saul reminds us of all that is dark and miserable and corrupt in this world, that David is one of those facets, one of those glimmers that shines a light on that refulgent diamond, that splendorous diamond, that shining diamond, who is our Messiah, our King, Jesus Christ, in whom we have placed our trust. And you tell us that those who have placed their trust in that King will not be disappointed. Fill us with your spirit. Remind us of this hope and grant us your peace in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing a closing song. Even though on the wall through the valley of the shadow of death Your perfect love is casting out fear And even when I'm caught in the middle 
of the storms of this life. I won't turn back, I know you are near, and I will fear no evil, for my God is with me, and if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear, whom then shall I fear? That is coming for the heart that holds on A glorious light beyond all compare There will be an end to these troubles Not until that day comes We'll live to know you here on the earth And I will fear no God is with me, and if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear, whom then shall I Love and serve the Lord. Have a great Sunday.